As we resume our study in 1 Timothy chapter 1 today, I'd like for us to go back to verse number 12 because I just feel that I did not do enough justice to Paul's personal testimony here as to uh, how he went from sinner to saint, from persecutor to promoter of the gospel. Uh, I spent more time on the issue of the Judaizers, which is a uh, perennial problem uh, that Paul keeps having to address everywhere he goes. Uh, but in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul tells his protege, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, uh, faithful in the sense of trustworthy. Uh, Paul is like, I am so thankful that Jesus trusted me to get this job done, especially based on my past performance. He says, appointing me to this service, uh, the service he has in mind is being the apostle to the Gentiles, a special task given by Jesus to this man. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, in the sense that he denied that Jesus was the Christ, a persecutor, because he tried to basically wipe out uh, anyone amongst the Jewish people that believed in Jesus, and insolent opponent. Uh, so he fesses up that he was kind of full of himself uh, in trying to oppose Christianity. But, he says, I received mercy. Uh, mercy is a kindness that is not due, but given out of the kindness of the person giving it. So, Jesus gave Paul mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. That is, in unbelief about Jesus being the Christ. Uh, he didn't have all the full facts. I pointed out more than once that when the Apostle Paul uh, was uh, beginning his uh, career there at Jerusalem, uh, he was a young man, uh, probably in his late teens, maybe he was 20. Uh, recently arrived as a hot-burning rabbinical student uh, from Tarsus in Kalikia. And he trusted that his teachers, like Gamaliel and others, would give him the straight information about this new cult, uh, the Nazarene cult, those that believed in Jesus. Uh, but he got bad information because none of them believed. All of them thought it was a fake, a fraud, and uh, a con. And so that's what they told uh, Paul, and Paul believed them. And so it was out of ignorance that he acted in this unbelief against Jesus. But that wasn't the end of his story, as we know. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You know, grace is unmerited favor. Uh, 
So Paul is appreciative of the fact that even though he didn't deserve it, the faith and love of Jesus Christ overwhelmed him and changed him. Verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's Jesus' own testimony. I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, Even his name in Hebrew, Yahushua, literally describes his job description. Uh, He who is salvation. So Paul says it's it's a really basic principle that Jesus came to save sinners. And guess what? Of whom I am the foremost. Now, I want to touch on that again. We know that Paul was not the worst criminal in human history. I'm telling you that all we have to do is pick somebody like uh, Hitler and his attempted annihilation of the entire Jewish race, uh, very similar to the um, murderous intention of Haman in the book of Esther. The Apostle Paul doesn't approach anything of that sort of quality or quantity of evilness. And yet he himself felt that he had done great harm to the church in the few weeks, maybe few months, uh, that he was leading this persecution uh, in later 33, maybe early 34. So he said, I was persecuting the Messiah's people. That's how rotten a person I was. Um, Verse 16, but I received mercy for this very reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the big troublemaker, the great persecutor of the church, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul says, if Jesus Christ could save and then use me, the persecutor of the early church, then he can save and use anyone. So that's Paul's point here, and it should definitely be taken to heart. Um, Verse 17, uh, he closes with a praise to the king of ages, the the king of eternity. Uh, God is outside of time and space. So he is in charge of time and space. To the king of ages, immortal. He just always has been. He'll never die. Invisible. So he is not seen by the naked eye. The only God. That is right in line with the great Shema of the Jewish faith. Uh, Hear, O Israel, He who is, is our God. He who is, is one. So he is the only one. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let it be. This is the truth. I agree with this. Uh, So Paul gives this great praise in the midst of his letter uh, to his protege, Timothy. Verse 18. This 
I charge, or this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. Uh, remember, he thinks of Paul, or excuse me, Paul thinks of Timothy as kind of his kid, the kid that he never had because Paul never got married. So his young protégés in the ministry, like Timothy, are his kids. So I, uh, this charge that I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, uh, when Paul uh, first met Timothy's whole family, and Timothy became a believer and was immersed into the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of that happened in the presence of the leadership there. And... Paul, as the apostle, lays his hands upon Timothy. And in the process of that happening, prophecies were made about Timothy. About how Timothy would be one of these great ministry persons, uh, an evangelist, uh, a protege of the apostle Paul. And so Paul says, I'm reminding you, of what happened back when you first came to Christ, about those prophecies that were made about you. And I want you to remember those so that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So he wants him to hang in there and not give up the fight because God's already said that Timothy has the wherewithal to engage the enemy. I mean, that's why Paul has sent him to Ephesus while Paul's doing things elsewhere. He knows that Timothy can handle the assignment. Uh, Verse number 19 continues, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, that is, the faith, has been rejected by some of these people, and so they basically crashed on the shoals of disbelief and made a mess of what had started out, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Uh, Now, Paul has no problem naming names sometimes, when they are big-time troublemakers, and these guys most certainly are. Um, If you go to the second letter to Timothy, uh, which will happen a few years later, uh, he says that some of these bad teachers uh, are talking in such a way that it's spreading like gangrene, like a big, nasty infection that's going to kill the church. Uh, And he says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Uh, So this Hymenaeus guy is a continuing problem. Uh, So is apparently Alexander. Uh, Alexander's also mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now you may remember that Paul's ministry at Ephesus was uh, shortened by the big riot uh, carried out by the the metal workers 
uh, those who were making little metal shrines for the tourist trade uh, that came to Ephesus for the uh, the worship of uh, Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians. Um, and they were so upset uh, that they weren't selling nearly as many products as they used to because of the Apostle Paul that they started a riot and got Paul run out of town. It was, it's likely that Alexander was part of that bunch. And so he never gave up trying to cause Paul trouble. So here is Paul telling Timothy, you know, there's some people that have shipwrecked their faith in God. And I'll give you two names for an example, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, that's an interesting line there. Uh, the closest thing we have to that is over in the 1 Corinthians uh, 5 passage, where Paul was telling that church, the Corinthian church, look, I'm not there, but I can tell you already, this guy has got problems, and he needs to be handed over to Satan. Uh, and what is meant by this is he needs to get kicked out of the church. You need to revoke his rights and privileges as a Christian, Make it clear to him because he rejects the word of God, the teaching of God. He is out of the family. Uh, so here is a possibility, at least, that Hymenaeus and Alexander may have briefly come into the church and professed faith in Jesus Christ. But as time went on, they crashed their ship of faith. And now Paul is saying, when that happened, I was there and I put them through the discipline process, put them through church discipline process, which is you reject, or excuse me, you warn them once, you warn them a second time, and then you bring them to the family intervention meeting, the church meeting, and if they won't listen to the church, you kick them out of the church. Um, and that's the equivalent of being uh, handed over to Satan. Now, the goal is that they will be so taken aback, so shocked, so hurt and upset about having their rights and privileges as a Christian revoked, that they will repent and come back. And so that is what Paul says uh, he'd hoped would happen with Hymenaeus and Alexander. But he does warn Timothy, watch out for him. Watch out for people like them that have managed to uh, crash their faith. Chapter number two, verse number one. First of all. So now Paul is getting into the things he wants Timothy to focus on. This is the teaching section. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, these are a variety of words referring to prayer. Uh, some of them are about uh, asking for things for self. Uh, others are about asking for things for other people. Others are about making sure you are thankful for what you've already 
heard back from God on. Uh, but it is basically prayer life that he's talking about here. He says, number one priority, I want people praying. Praying for people. Uh, verse two, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So we need to be praying for the leadership of our region, our country, our world. Uh, because those guys have been left in charge by God's permissive will, at the very least, but possibly his directed will. And in those roles, those leaders, uh, people like congressmen, senators, presidents, prime ministers, kings, queens, all the different high-placed authorities, what they decide has an impact on a lot of people. And so we need to be praying that they will make good choices because we don't want to live in a world of turmoil. Uh, right now, as I'm recording this, the Israeli war with Hamas has been going on for a month. By the time you hear this, it'll be closer to two months. I'm hoping that maybe some of it has been resolved by then. Uh, but what's happening is all this turmoil that's brought on by terror leaders that hate Israelis, uh, and then choices made by leaders trying to deal with that, but maybe sometimes having collateral damage uh, in that retribution. That does not promote a place and a time of peace where people can be focused on their relationship with God and with each other. Uh, so we want the people making decisions in our lives, in our world, to make good choices. And so praying for them is an imperative. Uh, verse 3, Paul says, this is good. That is, praying for them so that we can have peace and quiet. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, one of the things I always teach when I come to this passage is that it is really hard to evangelize effectively in the middle of a war zone. It's really hard to evangelize to people who are hiding out in bomb shelters or who are trying to hide from uh, invading forces. Uh, it's hard to evangelize people living in a crime-ridden neighborhood because they're afraid to answer the door. See, those are the problems. So we need a more peaceful society because that is the best opportunity for evangelizing and for helping people grow in Christ. And that's what God wants. Uh, God's desire, one of God's main wills, is that all people might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Now, that should help you understand right there that God allows free will to reign. Because if it is God's will that all people be saved, and God always gets his will, then everybody would be saved. And we know that's not the case. So God, in his sovereignty, allows us to make free will choices. And then he desires that those choices will be the right one. Verse number four or five, for there is one God. We're back to the, the Jewish faith statement there. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus is God, but he is not God the Father. That is a distinction that we need to make. Uh, they are still one God together. Uh, we do not have the brain power to quite understand how that works. Uh, we have to take it on faith, I suppose, until we get enough brain power one of these days. Uh, but uh, God the Father dispatched God the Son to take on human form from conception, be a baby in the womb, and then a baby in the land, and then a, a child, and then an adult, a worker, and and then finally Jesus becomes the teacher, and then the atoning sacrifice for sin. And because of all that, God the Father sees Jesus the Son as the mediator for all saved human beings. Verse number six, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So that's the atoning substitutionary sacrifice, which made Jesus uh, our high priest, made him the perfect mediator because he's both human and God. So he can speak from both viewpoints. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Uh, Paul mentions this from time to time, that Jesus arrived exactly on schedule for the best possible moment in history to be the atoning sacrifice for sin. And uh, it exploded outward from that time period and that culture until here we are uh, going on very close to uh, 2,000 years soon uh, since it all happened. And we are still embracing uh, the gospel story. Uh, it says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm not tell I am telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, verse 7 makes me suspect that there were some people at Ephesus still objecting to the Apostle Paul. They don't like him. They don't like what he teaches, especially this whole thing about Gentiles being welcomed into the church without becoming Jewish. Uh, but Paul says, look, I was given this assignment by Jesus to be both a preacher and an apostle. I'm supposed to be out there telling Gentiles about the faith and 
tell Gentiles about what they need to believe of the truth of this faith. And he needs his protege, Timothy, to understand that and to defend him uh, in those circles uh, where uh, his apostolic authority is being rejected. Now, this next section, we do not have any time to really delve into it appropriately. So I'm going to kind of introduce it. Uh, We are still thinking about prayer and how prayer needs to be offered, not just for ourselves, but on behalf of other people, and with a thought that God is going to act on these things according to his will. So when we pray, we need to pray in accordance with God's will. Uh, It should not be us trying to uh, force God to uh, give us stuff. It shouldn't be a gimme, gimme, gimme session. It shouldn't be this idea that I continually critique of looking at God as some sort of genie inside of a magic lamp, and prayer is the way that we rub the lamp in just the right uh, way with exactly the right words, and the genie has to come out and give us what we demand. That is definitely not the way that Christians should approach prayer. And shame on any of them that tried that. Uh, So he's still in the context of prayer, And so he writes this next. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands. That was a common Jewish practice. You can see it in the Old Testament. Um, Solomon, for example, when he was doing the dedicatory prayer for the temple, he was down on his knees with his hands above his head, stretched out toward heaven. It's a It's a position of supplication. It is a position of thanksgiving as well. Uh, But he says this, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So a good attitude. We are to be coming to God in prayer, having already Uh, acknowledge that we're in right relationship with the people around us. Uh, As we close, let me remind you of a parable that Jesus taught. I suppose it's a parable. He said, if when you are coming to offer a sacrifice in worship, you suddenly remember that your brother has something against you, then leave your gift at the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother then come back and offer your sacrifice. And so this is, I think, Paul's way of reminding us we all need to pray in good relationship with each other. 